The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 12, 1-3. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Jenny. So last year, the actor Matt Damon, he made a commercial encouraging people to invest in cryptocurrency. So in the commercial, I don't know if you saw it or not, he, he walked past, as he's talking, he walked past some computer-generated images of Christopher Columbus and the Wright brothers and a mountain climber and maybe some sort of futuristic astronauts. And he's, he's talking about people who've made... <clears throat> who could have made history but were too fearful. And then he ends the commercial with four words. Fortune favors the bold. And the subtext of that commercial is that if you want to secure your future, invest in cryptocurrency. Don't let fear keep you from acting. The future belongs to those willing to make bold decisions. Now, I remember this commercial was immediately ridiculed. And it looks even worse in retrospect, because if you invested $1,000 in cryptocurrency, the day that commercial aired, you would now have less than $300. The future does not appear to belong to those who invest heavily in whatever cryptocurrency is. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a dumb commercial. But, but the one thing I think it gets right is that it captures that common human desire to secure the future. I've been reading this on my own in the book of Isaiah. And in this book, Isaiah the prophet is constantly warning the people of God about the temptation to think that the future belongs to the brave, to the bold decision makers. And and, and in Israel's history at that time, leader after leader schemes their way to apparent safety. They build bigger walls or they dig deeper wells or they sign what they think are better treaties. And all of it's in vain. This deep human impulse to manufacture a safe, comfortable, secure feature leads inevitably to faithlessness and failure. So so I want you for a moment to think about your future. Like when you think about your future, how does that make you feel? Are you worried? Stressed? Or, Or have you done enough to be comfortable? Are your investments sufficient to protect you? Like that, that's often how we think about the future, isn't it? We often think it's up to us to make sure the future turns out well. If we'll simply make good decisions and avoid bad decisions, then everything should be okay. But let's be honest with each other for a second. How much control do we really have about the future? How much control do you have over your health? Maybe, maybe just a little bit. 
Give it up, but not much. How much control do you have over the way your body ages? The effects of aging on you personally? How much control do you have over the the financial markets that that are protecting and hopefully growing your, your future security investments? How much control do you have over your future employment or the society that your kids and grandkids will grow up in? The future doesn't belong to the bold. It belongs to God. And we've seen this over and over in the book of Daniel, and it's the message of these final chapters. All human efforts to guarantee a safe and certain future will fail, but... The plan of God never fails. The future belongs to God. Chapters 11 and 12 of Daniel, they record a final vision about the future and then some final words to Daniel. And in this vision, we see God's sovereign hand at work in the future. We can can see three time periods that are focused on in this vision. The first is the empire of Greece, then the final rebellion, and then third, the resurrection of the dead. So the first time period is the empire of Greece. So there's a period of time between the writing of the final book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. It's about 400 years. It's often referred to as the years of silence, since this is a period of time where God gave no new revelation. Well, this chapter in Daniel actually covers prophetically much of what happens during these years of silence. So chapter chapter 11, verses 2 through 35, it recounts both Persian and Greek history that span from about the mid-500s B.C. to the mid-100s B.C. The rest of Persia's reign is summarized in one verse, verse 2. And then verse 3 talks about the rise of Alexander the Great. Before verse 4, he dies and his kingdom is split into four separate kingdoms. This actually, if you remember, recounts sort of the same information as the vision in chapter 8 of a ram and a goat. Uh, Then here, verses 5 through 20, chronicle this contentious period of Greek history where two of the four kingdoms within the empire fought with each other. In fact, if, if you were to do something interesting, if you were to get a Greek history book and you were to open it and open up chapter 11, you would, if you read them both, be able to pretty easily identify the characters in this vision. In fact, the details of chapter 11 are so clear and so accurate that a lot of biblical critics try to say that Daniel 11 must have been written much later than it was because they have, they have no category for supernatural revelation that God knows the future. They assume this must be fake because it's just too correct. And so even though there's evidence plentiful evidence it was written during Daniel's lifetime, they, they disregard that. Now, now, the reason this vision focused on these kingdoms is not because they're the most important historically. It's because these two kingdoms most affect the nation of Israel. So geographically, they're located on both sides of Israel. And so as they struggle together against each other, Israel's often caught in the middle. So this, this short history in verses 2 through 20 culminates in the events that take place in Israel under the reign of Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. We also were introduced to him in in chapter 8. If you remember, there was the vision of the goat, and it says this little horn grew out of his head, which was really boastful. Well, that was the same leader that's described here in chapter 11. 
So verse 21, Antiochus is described as a despised person. He comes to power, and then what he does is he simply uses that power for his own advancement. He, he attempts to expand his territory, but in verse 30, these ships from Kittim, or Roman ships, come, and they basically say to him, like, no more. You're not, you're not coming this direction. Like, stop. And so in his frustration, verse 30, he, he, he turns his rage against the, the one people that are helpless to defend themselves, and so he rages against the people of God. And so we find out in verse 31, he's going to defile it in this abominable way. We know he sets up pagan idols in the temple. He sacrifices a pig, sort of the epitome of unclean. He sacrifices that on the altar in the middle of the temple, and he forbids worship of the true God. And we're told in verse 32 that while he's committing this reign of terror, many compromise. And some, verse 33, resist him. And ultimately, he meets his end in the Maccabean Revolt that is still celebrated annually during Hanukkah. So we're not going to look at this prophecy in great detail, but I just want to share three lessons that we learned from this prophecy, from this glimpse into the future of the Greek Empire. Here's the first one. Earthly kingdoms fight, destroy, and crumble. Earthly kingdoms fight, destroy, and crumble. So I want you to listen to some of the descriptions that are found in this section that's looking ahead to the Greek Empire. Daniel looking ahead. Verse 4, his kingdom will be broken up and divided. His kingdom will be uprooted, verse 4. Verse 6, she will not retain power. His strength will not endure. Verse 12, he will not triumph. Verse 14, they will fail. Verse 17, she will not stand with him or support him. Verse 19, he will stumble, fall, and be no more. Verse 20, he will be broken. So we learned in chapter 8 that kingdoms and nations are like beasts because they devour each other. They fight with each other. And instead of ruling over the beasts like humans were intended to do when God said to Adam to be fruitful, multiply, and to exercise authority over creation, we have become, humanity has become beastly. Like lions in the wild, we fight and devour each other. The young usurp the old, the strong dominate the weak. This quest for power is a fool's errand. I think of what the writer of Ecclesiastes describes. He describes as chasing after the wind. So this is what he's saying. He's saying you read this about all these future kings and queens, and they may be wearing royal clothes. They may wear gold on their head and diamonds at their necks. They may make decisions where thousands act. But you know what they are? They're like a a little kid with a peanut butter jar who's running around when the leaves are blowing, trying to catch the wind, thinking that at some point he can unscrew it and use it for his advantage, and there's nothing there. All of this manipulation, betrayal, seduction, deceit, and scheming, what does it produce? Well, here's what Habakkuk says. Countries exhaust themselves for nothing. This amounts to nothing. Each successive king crumbles, and eventually the kingdom does too. And all of these wars, all of this fighting, all of this bloodshed, it's driven by the same thing. So James, the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem, asks this question. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So brothers and sisters, when we read this passage we should recognize that we share 
the same evil passions within us as these ancient kings and queens. That our our battles are likely not fought on huge fields or in fortified harbors, but they can still be just as evil and deadly. We should read these verses and think, apart from the saving work of Christ, I am exactly the same. That I, like these kings and queens, I try to solve my problems in my own strength. I try to secure my future with my cunning and effort. And so I need to repent. And I need to trust my future. And I need to trust my plans to God. So the first lesson, earthly kingdoms fight, destroy and crumble. Here's lesson number two. Earthly kings persecute God's people. Earthly kings persecute God's people. Now, we've seen this throughout the book of Daniel, that satanic forces use evil rulers to target God's people for destruction, whether it's Antiochus in the 2nd century B.C. or Titus in the 1st century A.D., Bloody Mary in the 16th century, or Isis today. Evil rulers take out their frustrations on Christians. So under Antiochus, this, this part, verses 21 through 35 His persecution looked like this. The death penalty was instituted for any Jewish man or woman who owned a portion of the Scriptures or offered a sacrifice to God or circumcised their son according to the Scriptures or celebrated a feast or festival. Imagine being executed for the crime of celebrating Christmas or Easter. So this coming Sunday, we, we get something that only happens once every seven years, right? We get to start our Christmas day together on a Sunday, worshiping Jesus. I can think of no better way to kick off Christmas than a gathering with the people of God and, and singing songs and reading Scripture about the coming of Jesus. How, how wonderful, but now imagine if we had to do it in secret, knowing that if the authorities caught us, we would be killed. Well, some people would compromise. And that's exactly what this said would happen. Verse 32, this type of persecution causes some to be corrupted. But not everyone, verse 32 says, the people, listen to this, the people who know their God will be strong and take action. They will help and strengthen others to endure even in the face of death, verse 33. So Christian, opposition and persecution are to be expected. I mean, hasn't hasn't the book of Daniel been preparing us for this? Daniel 1, refusing to eat the king's meat. Daniel 3, refusing to bow down to the king's image. Daniel 6, refusing to obey the king's law above God's law. Like, we're being warned about coming opposition and being encouraged that God will see us through. Earthly kings persecute God's people, but the persecution does not last forever. And that's lesson three. God reigns supreme over kings and kingdoms. This detailed prophecy reads like history. Like It's interesting, even this morning, as we're talking about when these things were written, they were future events, and we see them as past events, and they're, they're incredibly detailed. They're precise. 
Why? Because God knows every detail that's going to happen because he is sovereign over every detail. And we've seen this throughout this book, but specifically in this passage, I want you to listen to these phrases. Verse 24 says, but only for a time. Verse 27, at the appointed time. Verse 33, for a time. Verse 34, at the appointed time. God allows wicked people to enjoy success, but only for a limited time. It's as if God has an hourglass in heaven, and when an evil person is placed in a position of power, God flips the glass over, and the grains of sand begin to fall, and their reign will end the moment the final grain of sand hits. And they have no ability to extend their rule for one second longer than God has decreed. In this passage, we see the interplay between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God is in charge, right? Chapter 7 showed us this wonderful image of God, the Ancient of Days, sitting upon the throne in heaven far above any earthly thrones. Right? God is the one, chapter 1, who gives kings into the hands of other kings. God can make the flames not burn and the lions not bite. And yet we are responsible for our actions. Nebuchadnezzar is judged for his pride, Belshazzar for his arrogance. And these kings and queens in these first verses face the consequences of their evil choices. Listen, no matter how bad things look, no matter how chaotic life feels, God is supreme over the details. So the first period of time is the empire of Greece. Here's the second period of time, the final rebellion. So the the last verses in chapter 11, beginning in verse 36, seem to look beyond Antiochus to a future leader who leads a final rebellion against God. This is the pattern we've seen. We saw this in chapter 7. We saw it again in chapter 8. Terrible human leaders come and go, but they one day culminate in a final leader who will be the worst of all of them. This is what the Apostle John was referring to when he wrote, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. To all of these wicked rulers that we've been seeing and studying in the book of Daniel, all of them who target the people of God reach their zenith in a final leader at the end of history. So when we looked at this in chapter 8, I compared the symbolic language to the Princess Bride, specifically the Dread Pirate Roberts. So in the story, the the Dread Pirate Roberts has pillaged and plundered for many generations, and so people just fear even the mention of his name, right? And the truth is that the Dread Pirate Roberts actually retired and secretly handed off the title and all the stuff to another Dread Pirate Roberts, and they did this generation after generation, and this was sort of how the book of Daniel uses this image of horns and kings. Just new horns keep arising, new leaders keep coming up, they sort of do the same thing. They terrorize the people of God. But now imagine that a new Dread Pirate Roberts emerges, who's far worse than any of the other ones who went before. This is in the sequel to The Prince of the Bride. It's not out yet. Now he's, he's no longer just a nuisance. He's a terror. And this time, the British Navy 
is determined they're going to stop him. So they throw the entire fleet at him and they catch him in one decisive moment, one final battle. The legend of the Dread Pirate Roberts is ended. Right? This is what happens at the end of history. The Apostle Paul describes this final leader as a man of lawlessness characterized by complete and utter violation of God's law. He'll be worse than the ones who came before, but he will be the final one. And then evil will be no more. I'm going to read some of the description of his rebellion. And I want you to remember that the way biblical prophecy works is that his activities are described in terms of what the previous wicked leaders did before him. Okay? So just think about that for a second. Or maybe this helps. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The vision of the future is presented in terms of the experience, knowledge, and events of the present." So so as we look at this description, just keep in mind that his future activities are described in terms that these initial readers would understand. Look at verse 36. Then the king, this final leader, will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his ancestors, the god desired by women, or for any other god, because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god his ancestors did not know, with gold, silver, precious stones, and riches. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. Here's what it's saying. All of these wicked rulers, including the worst, Antiochus and Titus and others, they are junior varsity compared to this final one. All he wants to do is destroy his his God is power and war, that he gives all of his money and energy to conquest and destruction, that fortresses are his temples and his anthem is death. He's like Lucifer or like Adam. He tries to take what he wants, and what he wants is complete autonomy from God. And though people and nations will feel his wrath, verse 36 says, his real target is God, because God is greater than him. And he knows it, and he hates it. Verses 40 through 44 continue to describe his reign of terror. But but then there's this. So we've had all these verses describing these human kings. All of this information about this final rebellion But then notice how it ends in such a simple way. Verse 45. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. And here it is. Ready for the climax? He will meet his end with no one to help him. Though he places himself in the perfect position to attack God's people, to destroy the worship and rule of God, he will fail. And there's no one who can come and help him defeat God. And he will die and be forgotten, just like Xerxes and Alexander and Antiochus before him. So God is sovereign over the empire of Greece. He's sovereign over the final rebellion. And the third time period is the resurrection from the dead. So chapter 12 transitions in a couple different ways. First, it transitions from talking about the the final human rebellion to what happens afterward. But secondly, it also transitions from sort of larger geopolitical events to 
intimately personal ones. Now, there are a lot of details and a lot of mystery in chapter 12, and I'm not going to try to explain the details. I'm certainly not going to try to unravel all of the mysteries. What I want to do is I want to ask you two personal questions that come out of this chapter. They're important questions for Daniel. They're important questions for each one of us. And I think they, they help us wrap up the message of the book of Daniel. Here's the first question. It's a question about the future. What will God say when you stand before him? What will God say when you stand before him? So the book of Daniel opens with Daniel standing before a king And it ends with every single person who's ever lived standing before a king. Now, the kings that Daniel faced often judged unjustly. They sentenced Daniel and his three friends to death because they did what was right. And thankfully, these kings who judged them were too weak to actually carry out the punishment. They weren't able to kill God's people. But the final chapter warns us that everyone of us sitting in this room this morning will one day stand before a king who judges perfectly. And so listen, that means he knows every single thing we've done. Every word we've said, every thought we've had. Nothing escapes his notice, we're told in verse 2. All will be judged, even those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And the outcome of the judgment, verse 2 says, is either eternal life or disgrace and eternal contempt. Those are the options. They're the only options. Like, friend, you will stand before the king and you will be judged. And this judgment is going to result in either living forever or dying forever. Suffering forever. And so that should lead us to ask this question. Who can receive the verdict of life. Verse 1 says, those who are found written in the book. This is heaven's registry, God's family tree. But in Revelation, the same book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. All those whose sins have been covered by the Lamb are written in this book. This is the list of those who belong to Jesus Christ. And this is the most important list in history. I mean, what list would you rather have your name on than this one? And we're almost at the end of a year, which means every magazine and newspaper and TV show and social media account is coming with some sort of list. Right? The 100 richest people. The 20 most influential leaders. The 50 sexiest men alive. The person of the year. And each year they make their list, and the next year the list changes. The Lamb's book of life never changes. If your name is written there, it can never be erased. And this is the most important thing in your life. Listen, students especially. There are so many things vying for your attention and so many things you think are going to matter that don't. This matters. Nothing matters more than this matters. Is your name in the book? Have your sins been covered by the blood of Jesus? Have you received life from him? I want you to look at how God describes those who belong to him. 
This is wonderful, brothers and sisters. Look at how God describes you and your future. Verse 3. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Think about what it's saying. God made the stars so that we would understand our future. That when he raises us from the dead and we stand before his judgment seat covered by the blood of Jesus, that he will transform us into what he created us to be. Reflections of his wonder. Righteousness and glory will shine from us and we will glow with radiance like stars in the nighttime sky. In fact, stars will be nothing compared to the glory that shines from the people of God after the resurrection. And so this is why we share the gospel with urgency. Because those who reject Jesus Christ, they don't know this. They don't understand this. We do. They will suffer eternal disgrace and contempt. And those who receive Jesus shine with undimmed glory forever and ever. And so this is why it says in verse 3, those who know Jesus should lead others to righteousness. We are not selling them religious goods. We are inviting them to forgiveness, cleansing, and a future beyond what any one of us can envision. There is glory waiting for us. There is a glory we cannot fathom, a glory beyond our wildest dreams. And this good news, that glory awaits the people of God, cannot change. God commands in verse 4, Daniel, to seal up these words until the end. Now, the CSB, if you're reading from that, it translates this in a confusing way. Because Daniel is not keeping God's words secret. He's completing them and sealing them. So in ancient times when a king would send a message, so he would have it written on a scroll and that scroll would be rolled up and then when the message was ready to be sent, some hot wax would be poured upon the edge of the scroll and the king would take a ring marked with his unique seal. He would press it into hot wax and they would hold on to that scroll until it firmed up and hardened. And then it was sent by messenger to whomever the king wanted to read it. And that, that seal accomplished two things. The first thing it accomplished was it, it made sure that no one could alter or add to what the king had written. And in order to, to try to adjust the king's writing or to, or to edit it in any way or even add to it, they'd have to break the seal. Be obvious. And the second thing it did was it It demonstrated the king's authority, that all the might and power of the king stands behind his seal. And so this is what God is saying to Daniel. He's saying, this is how it will end. Nothing can change it. I have decreed it. And all of my might and power and glory stands behind it. So the first question is a question about your future. What will God say to you when you stand before him? Do you know the answer to that? Some of you may come from traditions that tell you you can't really know. That maybe it depends upon what happens right before then or depends upon some things you do or don't do. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you can know If you have been given life through Jesus Christ and he's brought you to faith and repentance, you can know 
what God will say to you when you stand before him. Do you know? Because nothing is more important than knowing that your name is written on the Lamb's list. Here's a second question. It's a question about your purpose. What does God want you to do with your life? What does God want you to do with your life? So Daniel looks up, verse 5, and he's, he's standing along a river and he sees two men standing there as well. And one of them asks a question. This is a question Daniel's asked. Christians have asked. And he asks this question, how long, verse 6, how long until these things take place? The question is addressed to the man in linen. We saw this in chapter 10, that this is Jesus, our priest and king. And Jesus answers in a cryptic way. Verse 7, he says, Then I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands toward heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will be completed. It's not as precise as we would like, is it? A time, times, and a half a time. Many people think that means a year, two years, and a half a year, or three and a half years. Or roughly, verse 11, 1,290 days. This seems to be half of the final period of history, the time from the resurrection of Jesus till his return. But listen, it's intentionally mysterious. As has all of the timing been in Daniel. Like even Daniel doesn't understand what it means. Maybe there should be a clue to that for us. Because in verse 8, he wants to know more. What exactly, when's this going to happen? What's this going to look like? And Jesus doesn't answer him the way he wants. So can I urge you, brothers and sisters, to not get too hung up on the questions of timing when you think about the future. Instead, listen to what Jesus tells Daniel. He tells him there's going to be a period of refining that his people are going to suffer, but that he uses the suffering of his people to cleanse and purify them, verse 10. And so he calls Daniel to obedience and endurance, and he sandwiches his final words to Daniel with the phrase, go on your way. Look at the final words to Daniel, verse 13. But as for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will receive your allotted inheritance at the end of the age. He says, Daniel... Don't worry about how long. Don't stress about the future. Just go back to the place I planted you and to the job I gave you to do. And when you're done, Daniel, you're going to go to sleep. And you're going to wake up with me. See, he doesn't want Daniel to get so caught up in trying to figure out the details of the future that he misses God's calling on his life in the present. And sadly, I've seen this happen. I've seen some Christians who almost exclusively study end times theology and they ignore what God is saying them today. So instead of leading others to righteousness, verse 3, instead of sharing the gospel or serving those in need, instead of walking with the hurting and loving those who are difficult, they gather with like-minded people and read the same books about the same topics. Why? Well, here's my theory. I think it's easier and less costly to pour over diagrams of a distant future 
than it is to confront sin and selfishness within. Brothers and sisters, the book of Daniel is filled with mystery. It raises lots of questions about the future, but it does not in any way confuse us about what God has called us to do. It shows us the importance of faithfulness to God even when everyone around us defies Him. It clarifies how to stand for what's right when we're tempted to compromise. It demonstrates what it looks like to love your enemies and show kindness to those who disagree with you. It shows us how to worship in suffering and distress. It models consistent, effective prayer. And it reminds us to read and obey what God has written. And so we, like Daniel, are called to simple, faith-filled obedience. Jesus tells Daniel to get back to work, to get busy about the king's business. One day the future will be clear. One day Daniel will receive his inheritance. You know, we know as those living in New Testament times what that inheritance is. That inheritance is Christ. We're told in Ephesians 2 that the immeasurable riches of his grace will be poured out on us in Christ for all ages. Daniel, who never had a human home, will have a home and a future. He will finally, after eight, genera- eight decades, have rest from trouble and trials, peace from enemies, glory like the brightest stars. He will lie down in death and he will arise to life. But until that day, he has a job to do. I don't know about you, but I've, I've seen numerous versions of the slogan, keep calm and carry on. In fact, it seems to be that every tourist spot has to come up with their own somewhat ridiculous version of a keep calm and something, 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 buy our t-shirt, right? The original slogan, keep calm and carry on, was produced in 1939, and it was, had a very intentional purpose. It was, uh, it was produced in Great Britain as they prepared for war with Germany. And they understood the leaders of Great Britain that there was likely going to be just devastating air raids throughout the country. And so to help keep morale up, they, they came up with a, a few different posters that would be displayed to encourage and, and, and strengthen their citizens as they faced this attack. And so two and a half million posters were printed that said, keep calm and carry on. And we, we still remember, right, because it, it's very simple and catchy and really the message is unmistakable. In the face of serious attacks, our responsibility is to keep doing what we're supposed to do. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't cower. Do your job. Brothers and sisters, the final message of the book of Daniel is similar. God has placed you exactly where he wants you to be. And God has given you the responsibilities that he has prepared for you. He has given you, each one of you, each one of us, a specific job to do. And yet, we're supposed to do it in the midst of a real spiritual battle where we will likely suffer devastating attacks. And so we must not give up. We must endure to the end. We don't need to do great things. 
We do not ourselves have to carry the weight of the world or vanquish the enemy in our own power or strength. We simply need to trust God to keep calm in the face of opposition and to carry on doing what he's called us to do. And unlike the British government, which on the eve of that battle could only hope for victory, could only hope for peace, we know what the future looks like. That the future one day is the kingdom of Jesus Christ will fill the entire universe. And so until our king returns, he tells us to trust him and obey. Right, to keep calm and to carry on doing what he's called us to do. Pray with me. Father, help us to trust you with the future. And help us to be faithful to you in the present. It is our future hope which gives us confidence that our suffering will end one day. That though we weaken and we, we are being crushed and our bodies are breaking down and we have these broken vessels which seem to get worse and worse, that one day we will shine like the stars in heaven. So Father, help our confidence in the future give us strength to follow you and be faithful right now. Father, we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.